Um, if you missed the introduction, my name is Mike. I'm the pastor here at Christ Church Halifax. It's great to have you worshiping with us. Uh, I'm on week two of my crutches, so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm hobbling around at the front. We've got four more weeks. The end is almost in sight, but not, not quite. Um, uh, we're looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesian church right now. This was written uh, after several years of... Uh, ministry in the city of Ephesus by the Apostle Paul. So sometime around the year 55 AD, um, this is 20 or so years after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, who is a hand-selected chosen servant of Jesus Christ, he landed in the ancient city of Ephesus. Uh, if you read the book of Acts, which is the history of the work of the Apostles, in, in uh, chapter 19, it records uh, over two years of Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. Uh, he spent that time preaching the gospel, so evangelizing, bringing new people into the church, discipling those who were already brought into the church, and planting new churches in the region. Ephesus was the capital city of a Roman province called Asia. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't referring to the continent, uh, but it was the Greek-speaking part of the Roman Empire, a province that today is part of the nation of Turkey. Like our city, Halifax, the city of Ephesus was prosperous. Uh, it was an economic powerhouse for the whole region. Like Halifax, it was proud and prestigious. It had gymnasiums, uh, theaters, stadiums, large marketplaces. It was really uh, the center for education and culture in the area. It was a city that had so much going for it, according to the world standards. It was a shining city. And like Halifax, Ephesus was thoroughly pagan. In, in God's sight, it wasn't enlightened. It wasn't a vibrant city in the truest sense because they rejected God. It was a city that was living in a spiritual darkness, in moral decay and stupor. But in Paul's mind, this meant something really important to him. It meant that Ephesus was the perfect place for the gospel of Jesus Christ to go to. It wasn't a discouragement for him. It was, an, it was a big sign. The gospel of Christ will land here well. Jesus Christ loves sinners. He gave himself for sinners. And so Ephesus was the city that he loved. So uh, Paul preached there, spirit-empowered preaching in the city of Ephesus and in the area, preaching, teaching. And there were little pockets of followers of Jesus that began to spring up in the re region, starting churches. They were fighting against the darkness, experiencing the true life of Christ finally. And years and years after these events in Acts chapter 19, from a Roman prison, some 2,000 kilometers away from Ephesus, Paul wrote this letter that we hold in our hands to the churches in Ephesus. The letter that we're looking at right now, where Paul is telling them, because Christ is risen, because you are united to him by faith, everything has changed. So let's turn our attention now to Ephesians chapter 1. I'll be reading for us uh, verses 15 through 23. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. You could also translate it as, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head 
over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again. Our Father, you've been so gracious to your people through the ages, coming to us when we would not come to you, calling us when we we would rather just ignore you, and washing us clean when we would cling to our filth. Would you continue your merciful and loving work in us today, right now, Uh, Help us to love you and your work in us from the heart. Help us to see and celebrate that Christ has come for people just like us in order to make us more like him. Would you now bless the hearing and preaching of your word. Fill us with your spirit, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Over the last few weeks here at Christ Church, we've been looking at verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, where Paul celebrates all that God has done for them. He tells the Ephesians, you really ought to be praising God. You ought to be celebrating. You can praise God, uh, verses 3 through 14 tells us, because the Father has chosen you to be in Christ. He chose to adopt you as children. That was his choice. And he was glad to do it. Praise God, because in Christ, you have redemption. You have forgiveness through his costly shed blood. Praise God, because the Holy Spirit has sealed you as his own people. He's the guarantee that God is with us until the end. And in these 11 verses, Paul didn't pause for one breath. Uh, Not once, because as I mentioned in the Greek, which is what uh, Ephesians was originally written in, from verses 3 through 14, there's, there's no periods, there's no punctuation. It's just one long celebratory sentence. And maybe when you considered the content of those 11 verses over the last few weeks, it might have felt like information overload. Like if you look at verses 3 through 14, it's detailed, it's complex, and, and maybe some of the points from those verses, maybe you experience this when you read other parts of the Bible, just kind of go over your head, it's hard for you to grasp. Maybe understanding what difference verses 3 through 14 ought to make in your daily life was a little obscure to you. Okay, I'm chosen by God the Father. If I, if I have faith in some way before time, God has chosen me. What, what does that mean for me? You know, what changes practically now that I've heard that I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit? Now, some of this is the preacher's fault, okay? Not Paul's, it's my fault, right? Uh, When I preach, what I want to do is I want to make texts like this, texts that are complicated, more understandable, so that you can hear God speak clearly in his word in the Bible. I don't want to choke you with uh, technical jargon. I want to break it down to little pieces that you can chew on (laughs) safely, all right? But some parts of the scripture... Uh, some realities about God and his work, are, they're, they're so majestic, they're so other, they explode the categories that we have, they're so outside of the normal framework that we work in day in, day out, that it's hard to put suction cups on them. It's hard for us to, to, to stick, uh, for them to stick to us. I know often when I preach that I don't give texts their, their due. I know often I'm not going deep enough. And, and in this morning's text, as we look at it, I think Paul points to one of the reasons why this is so, why this is a reality that that I and other preachers and teachers feel this way. Paul tells the church that we need spiritual wisdom. We we need spiritual wisdom. It's not an option to understand the things that we've been taught. We, We must have spiritual wisdom to understand, to apply, to enjoy God's word rightly, to grasp what God's done for us in Christ. We need wisdom beyond ourselves, beyond our own abilities, beyond even very skilled preachers. We need wisdom that's given by God's Spirit. 
I think I heard Brittany this week explaining to our kids how, how the organs work, how the heart works, how the human heart works. We have a three-year-old named Jude, and he's hearing, you know, uh, it's an organ in your chest that pumps blood around your body. It keeps you alive. Uh, it beats regularly. How much of that do you think that Jude got? Like, probably, probably some bits, right? Like, he knows what blood is by this point. He scraped his knees a bunch of times. He has an idea of what it means to be living as opposed to not living. He can feel his heartbeat. Uh, but how deep does his knowledge go? I was talking to a med student just this morning, and, and how he, his mind is being uh, blown by doing a cardiology uh, block right now. Uh, we have an idea of some of these things. We can understand them in English. But often there's things in this life that we just do not have a deep grasp of, a deep understanding of. And the argument that Paul makes in verses 15 through 23, it's really in the form of a prayer for these people whom he knows and he loves, uh, is, is that the failure to grasp the truths that he's teaching isn't due to a lack of age. It's not due to a lack of education even. This is a spiritual issue. It's not that you and I necessarily need more information. Or, or, or a different kind of revelation outside of the pages of Scripture. It's not that at all. What we need is spiritual illumination, a, a work of the Spirit to impart meaning and understanding to us in what we've already received. We need spiritual wisdom, friends, to understand the Christian life rightly. In verse 15, you can look at it there. Paul is saying that these, these people he's writing to have genuine faith, all right? Uh, he thanks God that they love God and that they love fellow Christians. Uh, he's just told them in the previous 11 verses, verses 3 through 14, that they've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. But these people still need the Spirit's work in their life. He still goes on to pray that the Spirit would invade their lives, do more and more in them. If you're a Christian today, there's still wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of what God has done for you, that God wants for you. Your eyes, though they see in part are not yet seeing things in their full clarity. And that's not something that you can work on your own through diligent study, though that might be helpful in some ways. You need spiritual understanding. Look at verse 17. Uh, Paul prays this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Again, he's talking about Christians who know and believe the gospel already, but he wants them to know more, to know deeper, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Uh, verses 17 through 19, I don't know if you notice that Paul mentioned three particular areas of the Christian life that we need spiritual wisdom to grasp better. Uh, look, look at verse 18. He kind of starts there uh, halfway through. Uh, the hope to which we're called. Uh, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saint. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward believers. Paul tells the Ephesian church, and he's telling Christians today, we need spiritual wisdom to understand, that is to know, to love, to, to act faithfully uh, in these three key Christian areas, these three key aspects of the Christian life, our hope, our riches, and power, all right? Riches, or hope, riches, power. We'll, we'll tackle all three of those. So first, hope. We need spiritual wisdom to know our hope. The Christian life is one of overwhelming, unbelievable Hope. Hope in the present. Hope for the future. God is with us. 
Christ has come for us. The Spirit has been given to us. We've been chosen, redeemed, sealed. We, of all people, have reason for hope. Christ bore on himself the penalty that you and I deserve. We've been rescued, redeemed, forgiven through his blood. We're loved by him. We're accepted by him. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, many people in our city live without any sense of hope. In fact, they live with a, a level of despair, which, which, is, which is painful to even consider. They look at their present circumstances. They consider future prospects. And all they see is darkness. There is no hope for them in the future. If there's a God, he doesn't seem to care about me, they might say. They conclude, I'm on my own. No one's going to help me. And sadly, many Christians, I've spoken to many Christians who, who, who share a similar sense of hopelessness too. It's not just the people out there, it's the people in here. There's a relational difficulty in their life of some sort that's just sapping them of energy, of hope. Uh, they're incredibly stressed out at work. They can't see a way out of the problems that confront them on a daily basis. You know, they're worried about their future, worried about the future of those that they care about, their children, their adult children. And Paul reminds us here that a Christian's hope isn't something that we can just give to ourselves. We can't just bubble it up within ourselves by trying really hard to be hopeful, by being eternal optimists. No, hope is a gift that's received by the Spirit's work. And if you're here this morning and you've lost a sense of hope, of, of, of optimism towards the future, that God has good things in store for you because you are loved by him, if you want to believe these things deep in your bones, uh, if, you, if you want to understand the hope to which you've been called, that your Father knows you and he loves you, he's with you and, and nothing can stand against you, you need the Spirit to impart to you hope. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I'm, I'm so glad that you're here this morning, uh, you won't find lasting hope anywhere else. Don't try to, to, to work it within yourself through a positive outlook on life because that'll get crushed at some point. Uh, you know, don't try to, to, to build hope on your own because wherever you build it, it will be sinking sand that if not in the near future, eventually in death, all good things that you build will be lost. You need hope beyond the grave. You need something different. And Christ offers you this kind of hope in himself. We need the Spirit's help, though, to understand the hope that we already have to open our eyes. So our hope is, is connected to the second area of the Christian life that requires spiritual wisdom, and that's not only hope, but the staggering riches of God's inheritance in the saints. We need spiritual wisdom to understand our riches. We talked about this last week a little bit, so I won't, I won't linger too long on it, but I want you to note how Paul says this. It's important the way that he writes this in the last part of verse 18. He says, uh, he prays that the Spirit would impart wisdom to them that they may know what are the riches of his, that's God's, glorious inheritance in the saints. Again, he's describing not riches to the saints, uh, but his glorious inheritance in the saints. So, so not like we've got riches waiting for us, like God has promised us a great cash gift. Um, this is the reality that Paul's describing, that God has chosen Christians to be his inheritance. We are his riches. Paul says we need spiritual wisdom to understand this, <laughs> that God has chosen us to be his inheritance, to rest secure, knowing that we are 
treasured by God, to experience that, not just you're hearing what I'm saying in English, but you not, might not believe it in your bones, right? God has chosen us for himself. He's chosen us to be his, his, his own inheritance. This is mind-boggling. We don't really have suction cups to grasp all this means. The implications of such a truth is staggering to our daily lives. What does it mean for the God of the universe to treasure me? So Paul prays that the Ephesians would see this, that they're treasured by God. In his letter to the Christians in Rome, uh, in chapter 8, Paul reflects on this with those Christians, and he asks, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God treasures us, what do we need to be worried about? In the present or in the future, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, the reason why, why Christians, why, why all people, including Christians, engage in various acts of disobedience to God, you, you know, disobeying in their words, in their thoughts, in their deeds, is this. It's because they suspect that God is holding out some good thing from them. So, so for somebody who spends money in, an, in a totally irresponsible way, they know it's irresponsible, they know it's wrong, it's not, it's not being faithful stewards of, of what God's given, you know, on, on food or, or clothing or eating out or whatever, um, they have this unspoken assumption that though God would have them be faithful in this area, they're worried that they'll miss out on something good if they obey him. They, they believe somewhere in their heart that disobedience is the true road to joy and to peace. Like the person who tells lies to cover their tracks, to kind of present themselves in a better light than is true, they believe at least on a heart level, even if they don't say lying is okay, they believe somewhere deep that, that the truth is actually destructive to them. It'll rob them of some good. The person who disregards what God says about sexuality, about God-honoring relationships, believes, even if they won't speak it out loud, that they are less rich, less blessed, less fulfilled, walking in obedience to God in these areas than if they disobey him. There is more life in disobedience than in obedience, they think. And this is what we need. We need the Spirit's help to know and believe from the heart that we're treasured by God. That he's not holding out on us. That he can be trusted. That he, he delights in us, in Christ. As Psalm 84 says, For the Lord our God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Friends, he can be trusted. He can be trusted with your obedience. He can, he can be trusted if you love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But this is hard to understand. It's hard to believe. And so Paul prays for spiritual wisdom for genuine Christians so that we can understand the Christian life better, so we can know the hope that we've been called to, so we can understand the riches of God's inheritance in the saints. And finally, he prays that their hearts' eyes would be able to see the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe. We're looking at the power that's at work for us. We need spiritual wisdom to grasp God's powerful work in our lives. There is a particular kind of powerless that I've been experiencing the last couple of weeks since, since getting uh, the meniscus surgery. I can't do normal things on my own. So uh, I was alone the other day, probably not a good idea, but I was left alone in the home and I was like, I will have some tea. I like to drink tea. I was in the kitchen, I was hobbling around, boiling water, again, some, some, some red flags there, hopping around with a kettle, 
trying to pour the boiling water. You have to pour it when you make tea. It's right off the boil. I hope everybody knows that. Not hot water, boiling water onto the tea bag. I managed somehow to get the milk out of the fridge and undo it and get some in. A little bit of honey. From time to time, I'll indulge in that way. You know, it's, it's very good. Uh, and I did it all without wiping out. And then I realized that in order to go to my chair with my, I'm not going to drink the tea standing in the kitchen. I'm not a barbarian. Uh, I was like, I can't do this on my own. I, ca I can't carry, I don't have a hand to, I can't jump with, with, a, with, a, with a teacup in my hand. I can't crutch my way into the other room. Um, and maybe when you consider some of the most basic things in the Christian life, reading the Bible and praying, coming to worship on Sunday, living a godly life, committing yourself to obedience in every aspect of the Christian life, trusting in Christ more than what your eyes can see. These, these are basic things in the Christian life. All right? Repenting when you fail quickly. Owning up to your wrongs rather than just keep on going and ignoring it. Maybe these things, these very simple things to you, you're like, oh, I can't do this on my own. I'm, I'm not able to. I don't find I have the strength, the capacity to do these, these basic Christian things. Like Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, you know the things you want to do. It's clear, you know, you've read about them, you've heard about them. You know the things you ought to do, and yet you don't do them. Or you know the things you ought not to do, but you're too weak to stop doing them. You feel powerless. But here in Ephesians 1, Paul's telling all those who feel powerless, who feel weak, who feel discouraged, that there's power available to them. God's immeasurable power is available to those who feel weak. We need to be reminded of this often. We need the Spirit's illuminating work so we can know this reality clearly. You are not a slave to your passions. You're not a slave to your desires. You, you are not on your own in this fight. We're not helpless and unable to do what God commands. We're just not. And this isn't because we're such strong, self-controlled people. It's not because we have it all together. That's not the case, right? When we say, oh, I can't do this on my own, we're exactly right but we're not on our own. God's immeasurably great power is at work toward us who believe. How strong is that power? You know, what's the amperage of God's power? If you look at verses 20 through 21, I hope I use the word amperage right. I'm not an electrician, but okay. Verses 20 through 21, this power is unbelievable, right? The power that God has for us, that he works for us who believe, to help us obey, to help us trust, to help us repent. This is the same power that he used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. <laughs> it's that potent. It raises the dead. It's the same power that caused Jesus Christ to ascend. In, if you see that in verse 21, it's the power that elevated Christ, not just above all rule, but far above all rule, all authority, all power and dominion in every place and in every age. Any power that you can think of, any world power, any cultural force, Christ is far above that. That's his power. The power that put all things under Christ's feet, that's the power that's at work in your life. If you fail to say no to sin, if you fail to live the godly life that God's calling you to, you fail to repent when you really know you should, it's not for lack of available power. It's, it's simply not. Because this power is promised to us here, and it's immeasurably great. In verses 22 through 23, you can look at it there, Paul puts a cap on this prayer, and he reminds us that this Christ, 
who, who is the preeminent power. He is the chief authority in all of the universe. He has an intimate relationship with a particular group of people in this universe, and that is his church. He is intimately joined with those who believe in him. This Christ is described as the head of all things, over every nation, over every government, over all peoples, but uniquely, he is the head of the church. Now look at verse 23 for how this relationship is described. Christ is the head, and the church is his own body. This is an incredibly special and intimate relationship. Wherever my head is, there my body is also. That's a pretty, pretty obvious statement, right? I can't say, my head's over there. I mean, I could say it like in an emotional sense, but my head is over here, but my body is over here. Uh, we can't do that because head and body are united. Uh, we can't separate them. They are an organic unity. And this is what Paul prays that you'd understand and know. What is your relationship with, like, with, with Christ? That where Christ is, so now you are. That if Christ, our head, is filled with hope, you are filled with hope. Is he, if he is filled with the riches of God, you are filled with the riches of God. If he is filled with power, you are filled with power. And this isn't because of something unique in yourself. It's because of who you are united to in faith, and that is Christ. And this is what Paul is praying that we'd understand. Maybe you have a hard time grasping your unity with Christ. You need spiritual wisdom to understand it. I'm inadequate to convince you. You can understand what I'm saying because I'm speaking in English. But to cause you to believe this, to trust in it, for to make a cash value difference in your day-to-day life, when you face temptation, when it grips you by the throat, to know you have power, when hopelessness creeps up on you and you have a sense of hope, when you feel impoverished and that God doesn't care, to know that you are his own inheritance, that's something that the Spirit imparts to us. This type of unity that we have with Christ, it goes beyond these three things, of course. As we read through the scriptures, being united to Christ, our head has all kinds of benefits. When we look at Christ crucified, when Christ died, we died. Sin no longer has dominion over us. When Christ was given new life in him, you have new life. And when Christ was raised in power, guess what? You were raised in power. Where the head is, there the body is also. Because what's true of the head is true of the body. David Dixon was a a Scottish theologian in the 16th century, and he marveled, as many theological writers have marveled, at this unity that Christ shares with the church. And this is what he he writes uh, to, 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 to Christians. Christ our head. Christ our head was killed in our stead. He was killed in our stead. God raised him from the dead in our stead and for our good for eternal life. Therefore... You who are his members, members of his body, even in the midst of afflictions and in death itself, when you feel tempted, when you feel hopeless, you should be steadfast in faith, not in yourself, but touching your deliverance, looking to Christ our Redeemer, who is ascended into heaven and reigns with the Father, that he might take us into fellowship in that happiness and make us partners of that condition in which he is in. Let's finish our time together with, with a point of application. Again, we run the risk of, of talking about things that are just beyond us, things that are so difficult to understand. And so a point of application for us is, you know, how do we get this spiritual wisdom? 
How do we grow in it? How do we understand and believe these things? Well, I mean, it's kind of simple. We, we do what Paul just did. We pray. This is the point of application for us. If you would like to grow and deepen in this spiritual understanding, this spiritual wisdom, the call for us this morning is to begin to pray. Uh, this morning, in our worship guide, there's more prayers, actually. I don't know if you noticed that. Inside, we, we, we've done a little, a mini refresh on our worship guide. Um, there, after I finish the sermon and, uh, and we close in prayer, I'm going to invite you to pray the Lord's Prayer with me. Uh, we have a prayer for those who are searching. If you're here this morning and you're not sure what you believe, you're not sure if you have this hope uh, that you are the riches of God, um, that you have been forgiven and redeemed, there's a prayer there for you. If you would like to begin to believe these things, there, there's a prayer of belief that we, we've written there. Uh, Paul, uh, when confronted with his own inadequacy, prayed for the church in Ephesus. How do you pray? Uh, you know, for what kinds of things do you pray? Do your prayers ever sound like Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 23? They really should, right? When you pray for others, when you pray for those who you love, uh, do you pray these kinds of things? I know that even secular people pray. We can't help it. Um, if you don't believe in God, I'm sure you've shot off a prayer or two. Um, and this is because we're made to know God. We're, we're made to connect him. Uh, connect him. Often in our prayers, if they're anything like mine, it's, it's a laundry list of wants and needs, right? Uh, when we pray for others, we pray for their most immediate needs, you know, safe driving, a new job. Uh, but listen to how Paul constantly prays. He says, I, I constantly pray for you. I give thanks for you and I constantly pray for you without ceasing. Uh, he prays for spiritual wisdom, that the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Isn't that what we need most? Isn't that what the people you care about need most? Uh, uh, there's a saying that um, we, don't, we don't pray for revival. Prayer is revival. Uh, and we could say it this way too. Prayer uh, doesn't help us to know God. Prayer is knowing God. Uh, in, uh, on the info table, we have a, a Lord's Prayer Guide. If you'd like to grow in your prayer life, uh, let, me, let me commend you uh, on the info table to grab this, begin a journey in praying, in maturing in your prayer. Because prayer isn't, we, we don't pray, pray that God would help us to know him. In prayer, we know this God who offers to us hope and riches and life in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation now. God, we, we need to know these things from the heart so that we can live in, in ways that are pleasing to you. God, we, we admit our faults and our sin, our failure and inadequacy, and we admit even this is a work of your spirit, enlightening our eyes to see our great need. Now would you turn our eyes to Christ, your son, who is given to redeem us. And we ask all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who himself taught us to pray. Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen.